to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And this was a very special episode with one of the all-time greatest to ever do the sport of triathlon, Mr. Simon Lessing. Simon and I raced each other a lot in the 90s and early noughties. And I've got to tell you, the guy was almost impossible to beat. Five-time world champion. He knew how to swim, bike, and run, and he was so competitive. Um, this conversation <laughs> was longer than some of the others I've done, and even that I had to cut short because I was just so fascinated by his background. Incredible story of him leaving apartheid South Africa when he was 18 um, and basically just traveling to Europe and literally sleeping in his bike bag and, uh, and getting to races. Incredible story. Um, I think you'll get a lot out of this one. Incredibly inspiring, a remarkable human being, and just a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. Speaking of success, have you ever tried fast food? It's a high-performance fuel made from 100% real food. No more bloated feelings or crashes. With their unique optimal energy release system, you get consistent energy. Dive into their Galacto Gel, Galacto Gummy, or the Hydrator and taste the real difference. Give them a go and let me know what you think. You can write me on any of the social platforms. I'd love your feedback. You're out there training hard and racing, and I want to know how you feel on fast food. And remember, your mission is fast food's mission, so don't miss out. Right, today's guest truly is a triathlon legend. Before we had Gomez and Fredino or the Brownlee brothers, we had this man. If you've ever had a debate on who's the greatest triathlete of all time, well, this man's name must be in that conversation. Hailing from the shores of Cape Town, racing for Britain, to dominating the European and world circuits, his legacy is so remarkable that it inspired a generation of triathletes, myself included. With five ITU World Championship titles, Nice Long Distance, a string of Ironman 70.3 victories, record-breaking performance at Ironman Lake Placid, wins at big non-drafting classics like Chicago and Escape from Alcatraz, and his domination of the French Iron Tour, his excellence in the sport is just truly unquestioned. Beyond the race courses, his influence continues to shape the future of triathlon through his coaching endeavors. He was appointed an MBE in the year 2000 with the 2000 New Year's Honours for Services to Triathlon. And when I look back at my own career as an athlete, there are a few that had the impact and the sheer dominance of this man. So without further ado, welcome. And thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, Simon Lessing. How are you, mate? Good, good. How are you doing, Greg? Oh. That's the nice, nicest thing anybody's ever said about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, it's all true, and it's such a thrill to have you on the show. I, um, I can't believe it's been this long. It was, in fact, I had Julie Dibbons on the show a few weeks ago, and we were talking, and she's like, you know, you should have Simon on. I'm like, I asked Simon ages ago. Um, and here you are, finally, on the show. You've been highly requested, by the way, um, from the triathlon world to come on the show. So I appreciate you being here, buddy. No, good to catch up. Always good to catch up. Um, you know, what's interesting nowadays is that uh, I'm obviously doing a fair bit of coaching, uh, both remotely online, but also um, at one of the athletic clubs here in town. Mm. And we periodically have, you know, sort of the younger generations of athletes coming through. And 
you know, a lot of the time they'll say to me, uh, yeah, I do triathlon. Uh, have you ever done a triathlon? <laughs> <laughs> I've done a few <laughs> at the end of the conversation. So uh, uh, it's always good to catch up and it's, it's nice to bridge the gap between, I think, you know, the old historical athletes and obviously the younger generation who are really focusing on what they have to do, which means early in this sport, focusing on themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that in our sport, we're kind of caught in limbo, really. You know, if you think about track and field and you think about cycling, generally speaking, people that are participating in those sports or who are fans of those sports, um, they know the history of that sport. And I mm. don't think that's necessarily the case uh, in triathlon. Mm. Uh, a little bit of a narcissistic sport where everybody's in it for their own good and and their focus is entirely on themselves. Um, so, you know, I do think bridge, bridging that gap and kind of like well, where the sport is today, is it's there for a reason. And it's there because of, you know, athletes of the past that have, you know, help the sport develop in a certain way. Mm, well, well said, mate, and I couldn't agree. I feel like it's somewhat of my role <laughs> with this show to, yes, interview the greats of the, today, you know, having Lucy Charles Barclay and Ashley Gentle and all the recent champions, but I love coming back and having the conversations with people like yourself and, you know, I've had Mark Allen and Dave Scott on the show. I've still got to get Brad Bevan and Greg Walsh on the show, believe it or not. Um, I thought I almost had Greg on the show once and then he sort of, something happened an hour before and I haven't been able to get him on again. (laughs) But, you know, you guys, um, you know, when you think back, the the late 80s and then specifically for the 90s for you, your domination in the 90s was really quite something. In fact, I had a lot of fun just reminiscing in prep for this episode. It was, uh, you know, your name's up top and then I'd scroll down to see my name somewhere down the list on the results. <laughs> and it was like, you know, the battles with you and Spencer Smith. And um, it was just, it was such an epic time, the the transition from non-drafting world champs to draft legal world champs. And remember all the commotion yeah, around I mean, that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was definitely a lot happening in the sport. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, what was interesting was that, you know, we hear about Super League now and everybody's very excited about that. And there are all these different concepts of what the younger generation feel is new. And I'm like, wait a minute, we've already <laughs> done that. Yeah. You know, we've tried that. We've done that. Been yeah. there, done that. Yeah. Uh, so we are essentially reinventing the wheel. Mm. Um, uh, but it, you know, it, it is obviously fun, and I think we we were racing in an era where there were no boundaries. Um, mm. I feel that the sport has has really sort of become uh, pointed in specific areas. So you've got, for example, the World Series, Olympic Games uh, Avenue that athletes are following, mm-hmm. and typically those athletes are, are not necessarily racing anything else. It's really just sprint distance racing slash Olympics, mm-hmm. Olympic distance draft legal racing. And I think I was talking to one of the guys last week, and he was saying about. 60% of the World Series races are sprint distance races now, which is so yeah. different to what mm. we were doing, obviously. Um, and, you know, then you've got obviously the 70.3 focused athletes and then the Ironman focused athletes. Um, so, you know, we are kind of a fringe and always have been a fringe sport, but then there's fringes within that fringe sport. <laughs> um, you know, and I think when we were racing, what was interesting was that, as I said, I think it was considered to be the next best thing 
Yeah. And race directors were prepared to take uh, risks by putting on indoor races, uh, you know, mm-hmm. putting on, for example, you mentioned the France Sign Tour stage racing over 10 days. And, and just, you know, races had their own identity. And each race was a little bit different, whether it was a long distance race, short distance race, non-drafting race. Um, uh, and, you know, it gave the athletes an opportunity to really sort of exploit their strength as a multi-sport athlete, meaning, you know, and still I consider the best triathletes are the people that can put the combination of swim, bike, run together mm-hmm. and win and come across the line first. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, again, potentially we were racing, you know, we weren't limited to what we could race. I mean, I raced Nice, which is three-quarter Ironman. I mm-hmm. raced Olympic mm-hmm. distance racing. Um, I think I did my first half Ironman different in, distance race in Cannes, uh, when I was nine, 18 years old. So, um, you know, just chucking all these things in and learning from those experiences and not just saying, well, I'm just focusing on, you know, this direction. So we had those options, which I think, you know, the new generation of athletes, you kind of have to decide what path you want to go in. Mm. And then that's pretty much it. It's very hard to interchange uh, between obviously trying to do the Olympic route and then, you know, potentially doing longer distance racing. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the 90s for sure was a little bit like the Wild West, wasn't it? It was like you're going from here to there. You you know, we're following the World Cup circuit and then you'd throw over, go do Chicago and Alcatraz or Wildflower. Yeah. And then you you, know, you go back yeah. as an Australian. We had the, the Super League concept. Like, I mean, Chris McCormack would be the first to tell you, you know, Super yeah. League comes from the, yeah. the racing we had in Australia. Yeah. Or remember yeah. we did that race in Koblenz yeah. in Germany. I think you smashed well, us in that the, one. I mean, that was, yeah. the, that was the, the International Triathlon Grand Prix. That's right. Yeah, that yes which was all obviously those fun fun distances and i think that was obviously the birth of essentially super league um but yeah i think um you know i certainly had a lot of fun and um Mm. the racing was intense and uh um i certainly enjoyed it and quite honestly it seemed to make more sense at at the time to race short distance over doing long distance as a as a decision, it wasn't all about Ironman. No, for sure. Nowadays. Couldn't the agree more. Is all on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, monetarily, from a financial perspective, um, you know, it certainly made more sense to race, you know, every weekend or every other weekend. Mm. Um, I even remember doing races back to back. So I raced a race <laughs> in Paris on a Saturday and then raced in Marseille uh, in the south of France on the Sunday. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything was possible. Anything was possible. Look, I, I even go back not that long ago. I remember doing, um, what was it? I think I raced maybe Minneapolis or whatever on the Saturday and came back and did Boulder Peak on the Sunday. Or I think we actually we used to do Minneapolis and then fly to New York to race New York the next day when we had the Lifetime yeah. Series. And to your point, you know, the the money <laughs> – and when you're a professional athlete, believe it or not, you money does matter. Um, a lot of it was in the shorter racing and you could race more often. Um, you know, there were six-figure type prize purses. It was hard to go, oh, yeah, I'll go up to Ironman where maybe if I win, maybe I'll get some sponsorships. Um, for me, personally, I, I never wanted to make that change. Um, and I feel like you in your career – even though we're kind of a year apart, I feel like you own the nineties. <laughs> like I don't think anybody would question that. I feel like we all would take little, you know, whether it be Spencer Smith or Chris McCormick winning 97, little stabs at you or Dimitri Gag as he ran past you in 99. We can go into that later, but 
Really? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know. Uh, anyway, we don't need to talk too much about that one. But no. it was kind of like when I look back, I remember, you know, I was training with Brett Sutton's squad and all we would talk about is like, how do we beat Simon Lessing or Brad Bevan in the Grand Prix in Australia? But, you know, you really were the dominant figure that we were all just trying to figure out how do we beat? Um, it really was a dominance. But what I want to do now is just rewind the clock a little bit, just so people listening can get an understanding of sort of your background, where you, where it all started. Um, and, and just tell me, when did you first find your passion, you know, for sport and, and triathlon? Yeah, so I grew up in South Africa. Now, there's always this confusion because they're like, oh, did you race for Great Britain? Um, so I grew up in South Africa during the apartheid era, mm-hmm. and really it was towards the end of the apartheid era. So obviously highly segregated, um, literally everything was segregated. Um, beaches were segregated, wow. uh, schools were segregated, um, and there was really never much opportunity to sort of intermingle or, or you know, so you had really very stark different cultures having nothing to do with each other. Mm. Um I started, you know, swimming at a very early age and I started cross country track and field at a, you know, at about 12 years old. And these were primarily through the school system. Mm-hmm. Um, we were all encouraged. Uh, it actually was pretty much mandatory at the time that you had to do compulsory sport after school, a couple of hours every day. Mm. Um, and then you had obviously competitions and you could choose what you wanted to do. Um, I had a brother and sister that swam, so naturally being the youngest, I just started swimming at about six years of age with a swim team, swim club. And one of my very first memories was the coach said, right, we'll do a 100 warm-up. And I was swimming and swimming, and I was kind of put on the end lane, forgotten about. 30, min- 30 minutes went by, and I couldn't remember how many lengths I had done. And the coach <laughs> came up and said, have you done a 100 yet? And I said, well, I'm on 38. Uh, <laughs> Meaning, I thought she meant I had to do a hundred lengths warm up, hundred meters warm up. And I think everybody we've just understood Simon's mentality to training. That was awesome. So, so anyway, so my, you know, my first introduction to triathlon was actually uh, watching on national television on a Saturday afternoon the London to Paris relay triathlon. And the reason I was interested in this was because my swim coach was actually part of the unofficial South African team, which was sponsored by Lepin Sport, which essentially made the first squeezies um, uh, gels out of uh, essentially corn syrup. Um, So they had a team from South Africa who were competing uh, under this company name that was registered in in the United Kingdom. So it was kind of all under, you know, under wraps. It wasn't an official team, as Mm -hmm. we say, but that Mm -hmm. must have been mid mid 80s. And the swim team that I was swimming for, coached by David McCartney, um, actually held a little sprint distance race, um, you know, using the swimming pool as the, as a swim venue as a fundraiser for the swim team. So that was my very, very first triathlon. And that would have been sort of around the age of 14. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a swimming perspective, I was never a sprinter without a doubt. And our, our team always seemed to focus on sort of the hundred, 200 and, Oh, you're a, a distance swimmer, you, you know, go to the end lane and we'll get you later type thing. It was a little bit of that. And so I never really sort of found uh, 
an opportunity to 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 excel i would say in in swimming i mean absolutely i had the endurance i was always going to be more of an endurance based athlete same thing with uh, track track and field i mean i was definitely more of a cross country runner and even for me at the time sort of 1500 was way too short um but i continued to do both you know swimming slash uh track and field i made it uh, on the state team um in both cross country and the 3000 uh, in South Africa and went to the South African championships. And then swimming wise, you know, I, you know, I, I was sort of okay. Uh, not terrible, but certainly not one of the top sort of elite swimmers. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, I actually swam breaststroke and uh, really? 400 IM, <laughs> 400 IM, which uh, I did okay. just because, uh, uh, the, the, the butterfly eliminated half the field. How, how do you, let me interrupt. How did your times yeah. back then compare to your daughters? Because both of your daughters are phenomenal swimmers, right? Yeah. No, they would absolutely crush <laughs> my, my, Yeah. Yeah. No, so, um, yeah. So my, both my daughters right now, 20 and 22, are actually swimming wow. for the University of Kansas, which is the Big 12 Conference. Wow. And ironically, are actually swimming for Clark Campbell, who uh, you may not know this, but he was one of the top, um, Olympic distance ath- triathletes uh, in the early 90s, late 80s uh, here in the United States. Oh, classic. Awesome. And he, he swam for Kansas when they had a men's team. And then uh, subsequently after his after him dabbling in triathlon, he went back to coach for the University of Kansas. So classic. when my eldest daughter received her, her uh, recruitment, daddy goes, oh, I used to race against your dad. Oh, that's daddy awesome. Yeah. I love it. I love um, it. So, yeah, so anyway, so, you know, I started doing local races in South Africa, primarily sprint distance races, and it just makes me laugh because they were generally um, coastal races, so you had to deal with unbelievable surf. I mean, there were days where there was eight, eight, eight foot surf, I'm not kidding you, six to eight foot surf, and everybody was in fear just trying to get out, let alone trying to come in and get dunked by the waves, etc. You know, and I laugh nowadays, as soon as there's a two foot wave. Oh, they, they cancel, cancel the race, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of like just figuring out, oh my word, you know, it definitely made you grow up pretty quickly. Um, so I was doing local races, um, uh, and I think the thing that drew me to triathlon specifically was you know, as I always say, the sport found me. I found that I found mm-hmm. out what I was essentially talented at. I mm-hmm. was already doing competitively two of the elements, swimming and running. Uh, cycling took a little while to pick up, but, you know, over a sprint distance race, it wasn't too bad. And more importantly, you know, instead of racing for ribbons or little medals, um, I actually was I was able to make a little bit of pocket money. So yeah. at the end of the races, you know, if you finished first as a junior and I generally would place top three as a senior, I would be getting sort of double checks. Um, <laughs> and I was like, wow, this makes more sense. This is awesome. Up and down, up and down for a ribbon. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I definitely, after yeah. the age of 15, started to sway my energy and effort and uh, just the pure enjoyment factor of getting out there and racing in these different environments. And I, always say that this is what the sport has to offer every mm-hmm. time you go do a race it's a different experience you know surf swim lake swim mountains on the bike you know cross-country runs that sort of thing so um every race experience is unique without a doubt and i think that sort of a, a, you know that definitely uh, made me more passionate about what i was doing I love and it. in addition to that when you start to do well you definitely have a more you know you, you have a fondness mm-hmm. to what you're doing yeah 
the pats on the back always help, especially yeah. in those teenage years when you're all yeah. trying to, yeah, you're just trying to find yeah, yourself, then, you know. You know, and so up until the age of eighteen, I actually won the national championships as a senior, as an eighteen-year-old in Cape Town, South African national championships. And at this time, uh, there was conscription. In other words, you had to do two years of military service service oh. uh, in the army, and it was essentially a white only army supported by the apartheid government. The apartheid government was dealing with unrest in the townships and essentially they would bring the army in to essentially police the situation, which was really a lot of violence. Um, in addition to that, um, they were also fighting uh, in Angola. South African Defense Force was uh, supporting a guerrilla army trying to overthrow a Cuban government in in. Uh, in Angola, oh. and in, in addition to that, Southwest Africa, which is now Namibia, uh, were also fighting for their independence. So what that really meant was as an 18-year-old, after finishing high school, I would have had to have gone and done my military service, which pretty much meant I would have had to have given up triathlon. Um, and from a political perspective, I mean, I clearly, Obviously, being introduced and being brought up in a running environment, it was pretty much the, one of the only multiracial things that you could do. And I was, you know, from a young age, definitely struck by those that have, in other words, the whites who mm -hmm. have nice mm -hmm. new, you know, running sneakers and, you know, outfits and whatever. And then, you know, you had uh, a large majority of the of the people that you're racing against, um, you know, Africans who had absolutely nothing, you know, running bare feet. Um, well, yeah. shirts and then and then in addition to that whatever race you did they'd be running 10 miles there doing the race and running 10 <laughs> miles back type thing Gosh. so that was certainly an eye-opener and i realized from an early age like there's something unjust going on here so i felt like uh you know i did not want to support the apartheid government and i certainly didn't want to do military service um and so at 18, I essentially made the decision to go overseas, and, and I did get my call-up papers for the infantry, and I did not report to duty. I essentially left the country and went to the UK. Wow. And you were able to do that because your mum was British? Or? Yes, exactly. So my mum was born in the United Kingdom, and so from a young age, I had uh, British citizenship. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So that sort of allowed me to essentially travel over. Now, I I'd come from a completely isolated environment you know mm -hmm. as a as mm -hmm. a south african white south african growing up in the apartheid era um there were sanctions there were sporting sanctions there were economic sanctions um essentially south africa or any south africans were persona non grata so i try to sort of keep it hush hush and i reached out to the british triathlon federation or association at the time and said hey you know i'm i'm interested in racing for you guys this was as an 18 year old um, and they were not interested. And I think that they were still uh, licking their wounds from the whole Zola Bud affair. Zola <laughs> Bud was a South African girl yes. uh, who was from an Afrikaans background and really didn't speak any English and went to the Olympics race for Great Britain because she had grandparents or great-grandparents that supposedly one of them was British. Um, but she was thrown in the deep end and she tripped up Mary Decker Slaney in the, in the 19... <laughs> Uh, 84 Olympics, I think. 84, that's right, LA. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think the Brits had a lot to answer for that thereafter. And so when I turned up with a South African accent and a British passport, they're like, well, we don't really want to get involved in this. Um, 
Uh, so it took a while. In fact, you know, I actually watched the very first world championships uh, short distance in Avignon, France, mm-hmm. because I was um, living about, staying about 25 miles away. And uh, oh, so you moved to I France. Mean, you didn't move to the UK. You got to so you moved, skipped over that yeah. part. That's a big yeah, I step. Over that. So, <laughs> I did, from, so from South Africa, I I went to the UK with essentially no real contacts, and wow. I remember sitting at. Victoria Station, almost in tears, thinking, what have I done? I literally just turned 18. Um, I knew that I had to get to a youth hostel that I was going to stay at. But I had a bike bag, I had a backpack, and I was absolutely, you know, in fear of of what I, you know, where I'd put myself. And so anyway, my brother, who was, had just come over as well. He'd helped me out. And um, I went and stayed at this youth hostel in Kensington Gardens, where you had to be out of, I think, the youth hostel at eight o'clock in the morning, and you're only allowed back like five or 6 p.m. in the evening. So I would just take a bag and take my bike and a padlock and basically go train in Hyde Park or wherever else any other park that I could find, um, lock my bike up when I wasn't uh, uh, using it. And I did that for about a month. And then I went and raced the Southport Heineken Triathlon where they had an international field and one of the people racing was Mark Allen. Oh, no way. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I went, had no idea what I was getting myself into. What year was that? Hang on, what year was that? That was 1989. Okay, go on. Yeah, yeah 1989. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I went uh, as an just turned eighteen, entered myself into the senior race, and there was Glenn Cook, uh, there was uh, I think Rick Wells yeah. uh, from New Zealand, who I think had just won a. He'd won the unofficial world champs in '88, I think. If you talk to every Kiwi, he you're like he, he won yeah, the first one. Also, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he was also, I think, a gold medalist in the Commonwealth Games in. That's right. Sure the unofficial yeah. Commonwealth Games that we had. Uh, where was it? Swimming as well in swimming Auckland well, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in Auckland, yeah, yeah, and uh, anyway, so that was an experience. I think I, can't, I think I might have ended up sixth or seventh. Uh, it was my first so-called international, first triathlon overseas, actually. Mm-hmm. And then um, I met another South African, actually a girl, who was in the very same situation as I was. So she, Mandy Dean, who was a little bit older than I was. But she had a German passport, so she was essentially trying to do the same thing that I was doing, racing for Germany. Mm-hmm. And Mandy and her husband said, oh, you should come to France. You know, there's so much more opportunity in terms of the number of races. Um, so I said, oh, that sounds great. Um, so I jumped on the cheapest flight that I could find and ended up in Nice and spent 24 hours uh, sitting upright at the Nice airport uh, because I was waiting for them to, to turn up from Germany <laughs> in Nice. Oh, no. I had no idea what time they were going to arrive or when they were going to arrive. I knew it was sort of within a day or so. So I just kind of parked parked myself at the airport, but you weren't allowed to sleep at the airport. So the police, the gendarme would come around and kind of tap my foot every couple of hours saying, no sleeping, no sleeping. Um, anyway, so from there onwards, we did that finally hook up and they're like, oh yeah, we've heard so, from some Canadian athletes. There's, there's this little town, uh, in the South of France that we should go to because they like triathletes and they have a, a club. So we rented the cheapest car that we could find, which was a Peugeot 205. <laughs> and we had four bikes and all our gear 
and we essentially just strapped them onto the roof of the car uh, without any roof racks or anything, drove to this town and went to the municipality, the mayor's office, and said, oh, triathlon, triathlon. And that's sort of essentially was my my start um, racing in France. Um, you know, the first year was pretty tough. I think what we used to do was just get um, – uh, and the club did help us out a little bit with accommodation and that. Um, but we used to get the Triathlete magazines and they listed all the up-and-coming races. I remember that book we that were... used to come out in Europe too. Remember that little book? Yeah. I don't know who put that yeah. out, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And so um, we used to get them, the Michelin map and just see what was within train journeys uh, distance from where we were. And, you know, I remember, for example, going to ANSI uh, mm-hmm. during the peak holiday season to do the race, I actually got on a train going in the wrong direction from the town that I was in, leaving in the morning, <laughs> found out a couple of hours later that I was going, to, going in the wrong direction, <laughs> had to switch chains, trains, sorry, and then ended up uh, uh, in Ansi, uh, really sort of around 6 p.m. in the evening. I had nowhere to stay, and all the hotels certainly were full. I didn't have any money to stay in a hotel, so I took myself down to a local campsite and paid my 10 francs and slept in my bike bag. So that was my sort of first night's accommodation uh, uh, before the race. Woke up the following morning after getting no sleep and then did the race, jumped back on the train and headed back to obviously where I was staying in the south. How did you go in the race? I actually won it, so that was good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard all these stories. I've never heard them yeah. from you. I've always, yeah. they've always, I've heard these stories of Simon Lessing and how you basically went through this journey of, you know, literally sleeping in your bike. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, the thing is, I love I think it. You, it's so hard. You, it's so you hard. Just, you I just, love you it. You know, I look back at it now and I'm like, there's no ways I would do that. And I can't <laughs> believe I did do that. You know, so. You know, and there were other times where yeah. you'd get back, you know, you'd get back at the train station at one o'clock in the, in the morning yeah. and you'd have to ride, you know, 25 miles on your bike at night with no lights or anything back to, you know, essentially where I was staying. So, but you just adapted. And yeah. I think, yeah. um, you know, to one of, you know, to one of your points, I think it was a journey of self-discovery and, yeah. you know, you, you, you're adapt and, uh, it's not a big deal. You just figure it out. Mm-hmm. And you also figure out what's important to you, I think. Yeah. And do I want to pursue this journey or should I just go back to South Africa and get on with my life? And I think, you know, that helped me discover who I was as, as, as a person, first of all, and then, of course, as an athlete. And, uh, you know, being thrown into the deep end, uh, it's very, very different, I would say, to to the way we nurture athletes nowadays mm. and from a very sort of young age um i don't feel that athletes learn much about themselves because they're never put in a position where they have to um it's you know sink or swim type thing mm. um and so i think that you know there's a lot to be said about that and i know that you know, my story is no different to a lot of us, uh, mm-hmm. including you, Greg. I mean, mm-hmm. we just go out there, you do this stuff, and if it, you know, if it doesn't work out, you figure out a way to make it work. So it's uh, resonating actually a lot of what you're saying. I think about you know, and not to bring it back to myself, but I, I just thinking about doing all the racing up the east coast of Australia, having no money, 
with a yeah. bunch of mates throwing all the bikes on the back. And we used to tie a, a hoochie, you know, the army hoochie, you know, the big sheet yeah. that you'd make yeah. a tent and put off the side of the car and we'd just park right next to the transition area <laughs> in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, that would be the loudspeaker would wake you up and you'd get out and you'd go race. And then we'd always hang around because we'd wait for all the leftover food, bananas and whatever. <laughs> fill up the boot of the car with all the leftover food and go back. And it's like, those are the stories that I think that they didn't, they, they were hard, but you didn't see them as hard. They were just part of the experience and the adventure at the time. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you know, we didn't get external support. So basically you, we were on our own, you had to do it. And if you didn't do it was, you know, pack it in and go back home. And that's why I always appreciated you know, obviously at that time in the 90s, France was definitely, I would say, the center of the triathlon universe in terms of, I think at the time we counted there was around 1,200 races, 1,200 races a year. Mm. Um, so there was plenty of racing, plenty of tough racing, um, strong competition from both, you know, obviously the French and the international athletes. But I think, you know, for example, New Zealanders, the Aussies who came over, it, it was a full commitment. And what that meant was you raced hard, but not only that, you trained hard and you took the whole game pretty seriously. Mm. Um, um, you know, you weren't dabbling with it because essentially your survival depended on it. Um, you know, we, as I say, we didn't have a national federation supporting us or, you know, at, at, certainly when I started out, I didn't have any sponsors. So, you know, it was all about trying to make some prize money. Yeah, I love that, mate. And when, when was it then, you know, you're in 89, you're watching Avignon World Champs. And yeah. Yeah. when was it, you know, it's only two years later or two and a half years later, you're winning your first senior world championships in Huntsville, Canada. But when was it that you kind of was like, okay, I can do this. This is, this is, I've got this. This is kind of. Yeah. So I, th- I think, you know, I think, so as I said to you, I, I struggled to, to get the attention of the British Triathlon Association. And so what I did, which was actually strategic, was that they had the European Junior Championships, and I can't remember which town it was, but it was somewhere in the cent- in central France. And they, in the morning, they had an open race, and then in the afternoon, they had uh, the European Junior Championships. Well, I decided to go do the open race, and I was 18, like I said. And the reason I decided to do the open race was because I found out that Yves Cordier has, was racing the open race and mm. he was the current mm-hmm. European senior champion at the time. So I figured, you know, if I can beat him, then they're definitely going to have to take a look at me. So uh, I went and raced. I did beat Eve. I won the race. And the next thing you know, oh, oh, yeah, well, you should, you know, come over to the UK and do a selection race, which... I did. I made the effort and I went to do the selection race for the 1991 World Championships, um, which was in uh, on the Gold Coast. Yeah, Gold Coast. That's right. Yeah. 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 Yep. So um, I went and raced there. Uh, I think I was 19 and raced as a senior, not as a junior. And I think I ended up seventh. That was the year Miles Stewart had his big win. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah. that that was kind of a turning point for me because I said to myself, well, if Miles can do that, he's the same age as me, mm-hmm. then I can do that. That kind of gave me the, the, the push and the belief in terms of what I was trying to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, so it was Gold Coast and then thereafter I think it was Florida and then obviously uh, Muskoka. That's uh, right. In terms of annual world championships, but yeah. And, and then so, so fast-forwarding, you know, you're starting to win a bit by now, like on the French circuit for sure. But mm-hmm. 
going into 92, um, did you have a strong belief that, you know, after watching Miles win in 91, was your conviction, were you fairly confident? What, what was your mindset going into 92 world champs? Yeah, I don't think confidence was ever, a, I mean, I don't say this in a brash way, but I don't think I was, you know, I don't think I was intimidated by, by anybody. I mean, I do, I do distinctly remember thinking to myself, if Miles can win a world championships, I can win a world championship. So it almost gave me that extra motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, I did look at the course in Huntsville, which was obviously a pretty challenging course, certainly a challenging run course. And I did do, spe- you know, specific training workouts, Hill in the Bills, for example, um, on the run. Um, and I don't think at that, and that it was actually a very interesting race because most of the attention was all about the Americans. So you had Jimmy Riccatello, Mike mm-hmm. Pig, Brad Kearns, uh, Wes, mm-hmm. Brad Kearns, mm-hmm. Wes Hobson, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the Americans kind of had this aura around them where, you know, the world always worshipped the Americans, the founders of the sport, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Whereas I don't think we really had that. And I think what was going on in Europe was that every race you went to, you had to race to the death, basically. I'm not kidding you. Like literally, you, know, you literally had had to race your heart out to win the race. So mm-hmm. nothing came easy. Um, ultra competitive. It doesn't matter what race you went to. And then in addition to that, obviously, we had a lot of international athletes uh, racing uh, in Europe as well. So I think the caliber of racing and the level of commitment in Europe, uh, I honestly believe, was significantly higher mm-hmm. than what what the Americans were experiencing over here at the same time. So I think it was an absolute uh, wake-up call for the Americans because obviously the Europeans dominated. Yeah. Um, if you look at the results, you know, the Europeans, certainly the men's results, the Europeans dominated from from there on. Um, and short-distance racing was never going to be the same. Mm. And then, okay, how did that impact your life, winning that 92 World Champs? Was that a... Was that a pivotal moment in your career? Did things change for you? Uh, sponsorships yeah, and, and, and um, attention? I mean, yeah. yeah, without a doubt. I mean, obviously opportunities um, presented themselves. I mean, mm. you know, I mean, obviously it took, you know, this was 1992. I had just turned 21. And as I said, I do think that we were in the hotbed of triathlon at the time. And I do think as well that um, sponsors were prepared to invest behind an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pretty, 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 pretty good. I remember you just had the big amount. Nike swoosh on you. And Mark Allen and you were the two that always just yeah. had the Nike swoosh. I was always so envious of that. It was like, you don't <laughs> yeah. need a thousand sponsors, just do one big swoosh, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, I mean, so basically I got 15 sponsors on board, everybody from Giro to Oakley to, wow. Malik to you know, Physique uh, yeah, yeah. down the line. Um, so that definitely sort of opened up opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, and then leading on from that, um, it, the following year, which was 1993, mm. Mark Allen was doing his 10th niece. And so the race organizers thought that they it would be great to pit essentially this young up-and-coming athlete against Mark, who was going for his 10th winner in, in Nice. 
And they're like, oh, do you want to do Nice? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it interesting enough for you financially. I said, sure, that's, that sounds good. I had absolutely no idea what I was getting myself into. I mean, I obviously knew Nice. I and mean, then we talk about Nice now being obviously the, the Ironman World Championships and mm-hmm. hosting the Ironman the last you know, number of years. But, you know, back in the day, Nice was an iconic race. Oh, it was Kona had, and Nice, mate. It was Kona yeah, and Nice. Was, you had Those two were the races. Two. Yeah. Yeah, 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 two races, and the yeah. two most iconic races was June, which was Nice, yeah. and then uh, Hawaii in October. Yeah, and so I always wanted to do it, and again, very hilly course, uh, but literally had no idea what I was getting myself into <laughs> training. I was just kind of at a whim, going and trying to trying to you know do an odd run, long run, long run here, yeah. odd long bike here. Um, I was very, so nervous before this race because of all this attention that they put on that. You know, I specifically come to kick Mark off his throne, which really it wasn't about that. It was like, oh, here's a you know financial opportunity. I'll mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to do Nice. I was 21 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And um, I was so nervous that I threw up all my breakfast the morning before the race. <laughs> so I literally started the race on an empty stomach. Um, and in addition to that, did the swim. Um, I think I swam with Wolfgang Dietrich and Robin Brew, if you mm. remember Robin Brew. Yeah, yeah. Um, and got out on the bike and rode. I think I had a banana and maybe one gel. That was about it. And what was it, 120K, wasn't it? Was 120 120, yeah. 120, yeah. yeah. Yep. That's right, yeah. Yep, and then was sort of getting changed in the transition area after the bike and Mark Allen came in. I'm like, well, he knows what he's doing, so um, maybe I'll just follow him. See, see how it goes. And that really was honestly my approach. And it's interesting because obviously Mark has his own version of the story and, yeah. you know, how it's strategic and tactical about it. I had, I, I was just like, well, you know, he, he's done this. Race it was a 30K run, run, right? It was a 30K, 30K run, yeah, yeah, yeah. Out and back, yeah. yeah. So I just figured I'll just stick with Mark and I'll run on his heels. And I know that was irritating him and he would start to zigzag. And, uh, uh, you know, it became a little bit of a sort of cat and mouse game. And then literally by the time I got to 25 um, kilometers, I think it was like 32 kilometers. And I, with about five kilometers to go, I just completely blew up. I basically ran out of steam, ran out of energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do remember Bill Smith, Spencer's dad, had come out to watch the race. And he was on a little uh, moped on the bike course. And he was stopping along the way in the villages using a payphone to call Spencer and giving him an update on the race, Wow, uh, which was pretty interesting. And then, of course, Bill was on the uh, – and we all know Bill. He was a big character in, yeah. in, 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 our, in our era. But he was, uh, you know, he was uh, yelling, obviously supporting me. He's, you know, yelling at me, come on, Simon. You know, you got him. Go, my boy. Terrible. Go, my my boy. He's looking terrible. Mark's looking terrible. (laughs) Mark just kind of looked. This was, I think, Mark's first introduction to Bill Smith. He looked over and, like, who is this guy? And this was all while he was smoking a cigar on his his bicycle. Anyway, so, yeah, yeah, fun, fun. Fun, fun times, but like I said, I mean that was my first introduction to to long distance racing. That's awesome. Really, yeah, it was out of whim. And, but to and do I, it against I, Mark Allen, Mark's tenth yeah. nice win, yeah. you know, in the yeah. time, you know, Mark Allen had won. How many had he done by then? Five Kona he, Ironmans. Well, he had done nine. He had this. Yeah, this was his tenth. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but Kona as well. He'd done 89, oh, yeah. 90, 91, 92, yeah. Yeah. and then he went. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, and then you you um 
this rivalry, I mean, call it a rivalry for the sake of conversation, but between you and Spencer Smith, um, you know, British triathlon, I always felt like as Australians, we were going over to take on the two Brits, you and, and Spencer. But you two had yeah. your own rivalry um, that I think you squeeze so much out of each other. And you fast forward to 93 Manchester. There was a lot of talk on that one. You're the defending champ. But like you said, you just come off <laughs> racing Nice. Um, yeah. what was that whole rivalry like? What was that experience like in 93? Um, well, I actually raced in Helsinki the week before against Spencer. Okay. Um, it was a sprint distance race literally like six days before. And we literally, you know, beat each other up through the entire race. Um, you know, I remember every stroke, either I was bashing him over the head or more like he was bashing me over yeah, the head. That's how Spencer raced you know, in the swim. You yep, never wanted yep. to be. <laughs> yep. And then we were side by side on the bike. And of course, Bill didn't like that. Bill being Spencer's dad. Yeah, yeah. And then on the run, you know, um, in fact, there's still a video, there's a little video clip of that where I said to Spencer, you know, you want to play games because he was trying to nudge me out with his elbows. Do you want to play games? And I put the hammer down and managed to gap him. Um, so that, yeah. that, that was literally just before. Wow. But, uh, you know, in terms of the rivalry, I think part and part and parcel of that was my background. So yeah, there was a yeah. contingent of Brits who didn't feel that I was British. Yeah, obviously. gotcha, gotcha. And of course, Spencer was the, the real Brit. The real mm. British boy, mm. and, blue collar, blue collar British lad, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I was just an imposter essentially, okay, from, okay, know, from South Africa, etc. So I think that that essentially was the basis of 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 that rivalry. Mm. Um, you know, Spencer was an animal. All of us know. Mm-hmm. Whenever you race Spencer, it was not going to be an easy day, no. um, uh, because he could just you know put it put it down. But that rivalry uh, went once. for years. Did you guys? Was there a mutual respect and you guys became mates or was there always this underlying, <laughs> you know, tension? No, it was, it actually was pretty, you know, I love to have a beer or whatever. But I think at the time, um, you know, we were so, so competitive. Yeah, um, yeah, I get it. With each other that it was a very uh, sort of, I would say, unfriendly slash hostile you mm. know, uh, environment to the point where, you know, if Spence was in a restaurant, I didn't want to go in there, vice versa, you know, mm. uh, you know, God forbid we, you know, ended up in an elevator together or something. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I eventually ended up going up to Spence's dad and said, this is kind of rid- ridiculous. Neither of us are going anywhere. So we're going to race for quite some time. So let, you know, let bygones be bygones. Oh yeah. I just love my boy. I support my boy. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that was it. And I think after that, um, um, I think, you know, we were, we were good to go essentially. That's awesome. I mean, look, it was, it was a, it was a great time in the, in the, in the sports history. The domination of the two of you was, was quite extraordinary. Fast forwarding to 95 Cancun, which I was at, I was at Wellington in 94 when, when Spencer, also did damage to us. You didn't do 94. Why were why, why no, you I decided 94? Not, I decided not to do it because I think, if I recall, I'd done a whole season in Europe, mm. uh, which also included, I think, Nice. And, and you did that Paris did indoor it. race. Remember the Paris indoor yeah, race in yeah, 94? Yeah. I think and Brad I think won if that. I, yeah, but if, if, if I recall, it was like sort of a November race. It was. Like it was late. And I was yeah. just done. I'm like, I, I can't you know, yeah. be up for yeah. I can't be up for this, which was always hard racing. Northern Hemisphere, Southern oh, Hemisphere. I literally done a whole season of racing, and I'm yep. like, I'm really not going to be in shape to go and race and travel, etc. 
in November and the weather had already started to turn in Europe and it just wasn't you know conducive which is primarily the reason why I decided not to go racing no, I, I don't blame you it was look it, the, the weather you would have been perfect I remember right that was my first world champs in 94 and okay. Wellington okay. was windy and cold and very <laughs> very British weather um, yeah, yeah. and uh, that was yeah. when Spencer put us away but then 95 was our first year we all went draft legal um, and that was a it was a little bit of an adaptation you know for everybody to get you know go from non-drafting even though there was some drafting probably yeah. non-drafting but this was the first time we were draft legal um what were your thoughts with that whole change and then going to cancun world champs um you know i was you know for me personally um i mean as you know greg cycling was always going to be my third discipline it wasn't you know i got to the point where i was i developed enough where I could essentially hang in there, but I was mm-hmm. never going to be a world beater on the bike, put it that way. So my strength was always sort of coming out within the first, you know, couple of guys on the swim, hanging in for dear life on the bike, <laughs> and, then, and then obviously trying to make a difference on the run. I never saw um, you that way, by the way. I know, I just okay. saw you as a complete triathlete that I couldn't figure out how to beat. But go on. I mean, I think it took it took it took it took years for me to actually get to a point where I could hold my yeah bike. yeah. But, I get it. I get and again, and you know, for anyone who's listening to this, I mean, as we all know, um, we all have our strengths and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. weaknesses within a multi sport event, um, but. You know, for, so for me, I actually kind of liked it because I think there was a group of us, and I honestly don't remember. I know Brad was in there. Yeah, there was uh, maybe big, Hamish yeah. Carter. There was a, there was a relatively small group that got away initially, mm. and so instead of having to worry about forty five, fifty guys, it, it it became well, let's just worry about whoever's in this group type thing. Mm. Um, did you do the race? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I think I was driving that pack with you. I think. Uh, okay. Uh, I was really, that was the first time I was actually thinking I was there to help Brad Bevan. I kept trying to get him on my wheel. Um, okay. Maybe. Yep. So you were in the pack. I was in that pack, but I wasn't running to your level. I think, uh, you, you were running sub 30 type pace already. And I remember Cancun was mega hot and you still ran a 31 flat in Cancun heat. I just remember you ran, you outran the field by over a minute, um, and just, put everybody away. I don't think anybody got yeah, close I, to for whatever reason, just had an amazing day. Yeah. I mean, certainly on the run yeah. uh, and it, and it doesn't always correlate. And that's what I try and tell the people that we're coaching, you know, just because you have a great swim that specific day, doesn't mean it's going to correlate to a great bike or a great run. Hmm. Um, and I've always said, you know, and maybe the 20 something years that I raced, I, I maybe only had two perfect races and I didn't even realize it at the time. Yeah. And that's, you know, most races, it's a bit of a struggle. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, there's something that's not going, going, going so well, but I do remember, uh, in Cancun, you know, everyone's out and trying to acclimatize. I just stayed in my air conditioned bedroom and didn't come out until I had to, you know, really go and do some exercise. And, um, I think that worked for me. Um, it worked all right. You know, so that was, that was yeah. a, that was a, that was a fun race. I mean, the one thing I do remember about that race and I will never forget was, um, you know, coming into the finish shoot, there were, I grabbed a, a Union Jack British flag yeah. uh, from a spectator who was just holding a flag on the side. I'm like, oh, this is a little bit of a dirty looking Union Jack. Oh. Anyway, came across the finish line and then, you know, all the protocols had gone, you know, going through all the protocols of, you know, finish line, podium, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then this flag disappeared, never thought anything of it until the following day when I was at the airport 
uh, leaving Cancun, an elderly gentleman came up to me <clears throat> and he goes, oh, Simon, do you have my Union Jack? And I said, oh, no, sorry. He goes, yeah, you grabbed it from me. And it turns out that he, uh, his dad had had taken it with him at the Battle of Normandy. Oh, don't. And he went and fought with this flag in his oh. backpack through the, through the Battle of Normandy, yeah. So And you lost it? I, feel, I lost it, yeah. yeah. Oh, so, buddy. So uh, oh. you know, he was pretty distraught about it. And I said, look, I, you know, I can offer to pay you for it, but I'm sure that, you know, uh, that's not going to do anything for you. But, yeah, that's oh. one thing I do remember from that. <laughs> oh, yes. Oops. So bad. Oops. Still, uh, oh. really guilty, yeah. Man. Anyway. And then how about – um. I know I'm fast-forwarding over so many of your amazing performances, but 96 world champs in Cleveland. Um, I'm only bringing this one up because I remember our nice little breakaway with you, me, Hamish, mm-hmm. Brad Bevan, and Craig Walton. I think it was the five mm-hmm. of us. Um, I remember after that brutal – you remember that swim? <laughs> Do you remember the swim in the inner harbour of Cleveland? <laughs> and and yep. we're just getting the absolute shit beaten out of – you remember trying to get around that – tiny little yeah, course yeah. yeah little course then two laps if i recall but yeah yeah and um, that was a that was a hell of a race um yeah we, and, we, I, and i can tell you we, we all did our fastest olympic distance times that's right where yeah to the point where that was still in the uh, uh, guinness book world records of being the world record 136 <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> I, think, I think i ran 26 or 27 <laughs> minutes off the bike so yeah well remember that I, was uh luke van leard remember that was the first time i'd really heard of luke van leard yeah, he kind of came yeah. came from nowhere and went yeah. blazing by us you you were the only one that yeah. held him off because he came from the second pack and ran his way yeah. through us all um but mate, that one then took you to three. You know, at this point, no one had won more than one. Um, you know, ITU World Championships, and now you're up to three. Spencer was on mm-hmm. two. Um, what was when you look back at your career? Was at this point in your career really the highest high around this sort of ninety five, ninety six? You know, up to ninety eight World Champs. Was that a really special time for you? Um, yes, it was. I mean, I think, you know, for me, uh, there was a little bit of internal turmoil with regards to, to, I, I mean, I don't know, Greg, if you know this, but I never raced many world cups, um, mm. almost in protest. I mean, I did the bare minimum in terms of what I needed to do to qualify to go to the world championships. Huh. Uh, so I would, you know, dabble in one or two world cups here and there. A lot of the races that I was doing were independent races who were paying appearance fees, et cetera, et cetera. So the issue, yeah. one of the issues I had was obviously, um, if you recall, the ITU back then, which is now World Triathlon, banned appearance fees mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for the top athletes. They used to pay um, the top 10 airfares. Remember, if you got top yes, 10 at a World yeah. Cup, they'd pay for your airfare yeah. to the next or something. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I was, I yeah. was making pretty good money. Yeah, uh, in Europe, racing independent races, um, so there wasn't really a need to go and do a whole list of, of World, World Series or World Cup races at the time. Um, so there was that going on, and then in addition to that, um, I don't know if you remember, they had um, uniform criteria. Oh, remember that whole thing? All of oh. a sudden, all of a sudden, had to you know reduce the size of your logos. Only allowed one yep. logo on your. Mm-hmm. on your shirt etc and i'm like well i got you know these these ongoing contracts i can't just you know yeah well you play by game our game or you don't play at all so there was a lot of that going on so you talk yeah. about 96 i actually got on a plane that evening and went home i didn't even go to the uh, prize giving 
yeah um um i was out of protest a little bit yeah um, yeah with with what was going on i remember that protest in ishigaki jima at the world cup there you know we were all going to not race and then Mm -hmm. i think it was welsh she's like oh come on let's go race and then we're like hang on have you just done a side deal with with the itu and i don't know if you did by the way that's speculation but (laughs) i remember all those going hang on why are you suddenly (laughs) so keen on racing um because to your point we all had sponsors. We all had different things, and suddenly they're saying, "Nope, you can't. You can have your name on your front and two little sponsors under there." Like, whoa, whoa, whoa! We're not doing that. Um, it was a yeah, big change. Yeah. It, it was big. When, when yeah. looking looking at your career um, from thirty thousand feet right now, as we look back, you really had some of the highest highs. I think many athletes right now would be, you know, give their left arm to have just a couple of those. What really stands out to you when you look back at your career? What, what are a couple of things that you go, wow, that was awesome? Yeah, I mean, I think I knew you were going to ask this question. So, <laughs> and, I, and I've thought about it a lot because it actually gets asked quite a lot. Oh, you know, what yeah, was your favorite yeah. race? Which is your biggest victory, whatever. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I've said this time and time again, I think the thing that I was most proud of really was the fact that I was able to dominate for, you know, a decade plus. Yeah, um, 100%. And, and so it wasn't one specific event, you know, as I said, each of those events are different, different experiences, et cetera. Um, but I think the thing in terms of my career that really stands out is that I was able to literally year in, year out, didn't matter what race I went to be competitive, really from 19, you know, I would say 1990, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, you know, really mid 2000s. Yeah. So, I couldn't, um, that's a great answer, mate. And I, I think, that's really well put because I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I, 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 and I think, and I, you know, I say to people, I said, well, you know, oh, somebody so-and-so just won, you know, such and such race. I said, well, you know, or a world champs. I said, well, that's the easy part. The hard part is, you know, having to do it again and again, again and again. And again. And again. Yeah. Or in addition to that, and then again, to the point of sponsorship, et cetera, I really felt like the sport offered us uh, the ability to create an identity around what we were doing. So, you know, within triathlon we were able to create a name for ourselves and have a business yeah you have a business internally that offered you know you know and again print media is great every month you get your triathlon magazines and there's pictures of you there was value to print media in that regard yeah um you could you know i still have magazines hundreds of them upstairs you know that's awesome and 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 you can see okay well you know this is what i'm wearing this is what i'm using these are the ads that go along with that Mm um so you essentially there was a, a marketing value through your integrity as a person, uh, the the consistency of your racing. So it wasn't just winning one race and then mm-hmm. you know falling off the wayside and never winning another race until twelve months' time type that type thing. And you know I think we had pers- because of that uh, we had personalities uh, in the sport. And if you and and so I think that's very very different to where we are now. And you're looking at, you know, sponsorships is based on how many clicks you have. Yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. In terms of social media. Yeah. Um, I mean, you still have, you still have the jump out, you know, the Jan Fidinos and the, the, you know, the Gomez and the Brownleys and the names that, that really do pop out because they're dominated. You know, that's why I said in the introduction, you're, you're a part of that select few that really charged forward and dominated for a long period of time. I, I put you and Javier Gomez in very much the same bucket. You both won multitude of world championships. You both won so many races that you started. But, but you know, in. then again, it's generational. And Absolutely. And again, 
you know, if you think about that, when we were racing, you had a world championships, you had to perform on that given day. Yeah. So, you know, I think as soon as, you know, it becomes a world, a world championship series, crowning a world champion at the end of the series, that actually, because it's my idea race consistently, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, so, I think the mountain bikers have it the best. Where they have the World Cup series. Well, you have a World yeah. Cup series, and that's a big yeah. deal. You win the World Cup series, yeah. it's really awesome. Yeah. And you win the World Championships, the one-day event. And so you look at something yeah. like a Nino Scherter, and, you know, he's yeah. won whatever, what, 10 <laughs> World Championships yeah. and however many World Cup series. And I love having the both. And I, I feel yeah. like we've cheapened ourselves by putting it as one. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, even back in our era, we had the World Cup series. Yeah, you'd win the World you know, Series. You had yeah, the individual. Well, Brad World Bevan Cup. won the World Series. You'd win the yeah. win-offs. <laughs> it yeah. was like a. Yeah. I know. I, I love that. When when you look back, are there any regrets or any low points in your career that be you'd love to have a do-over? Um, I mean, obviously, for me, biggest regret would have been uh, the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened there? Kind of what happened there, mate? <laughs> Ninth. That's not when you look at your results on everything you've done. That's just yeah. not a number that yeah. sits right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a number of things, and I think that uh, you know, um, in order for me to win that race, uh, I I had to race a certain way. Mm. Um, and if you looked at where I started, for example, on the pontines, pontoon, mm-hmm. you know, because of my World Cup ranking, because I was not racing World Cup races, my ranking was not very good. Mm. So I got one of the worst spots on the pontoon starting on the extreme outside of the course. And I knew that going into the race. Mm. So I knew that I had to, you know, prep myself in order to, you know, swim over and get on. Uh, essentially, it was Craig Walton's feet, mm-hmm. and actually, that that was successful. And again, I cannot remember the group exactly, but there was a small group of us. You may, you may be able to remind me. Yeah, well, it's definitely you, Craig Walton. There was maybe one um, or two Hamish others. Carter. Hamish, Hamish was in Carter. there. Yeah, yep. and I think you know there was an eight-lap bike course. We were in front. You know, the four or five of us were in front for four of those laps, and then this mass uh, group. Uh, which was predominantly the rest of the field caught us up. Yeah, and then once that happened, it was uh, the Wild West essentially. Who's got the right? Yeah, five minutes of fame. Everybody attacking left, right, and center, and everybody essentially looking at the race favorite, saying, "You want to win this race, you better go chase those guys down." Mm, mm. Um, and that's essentially what I ended up doing: chasing, 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 uh, with every attack. You catch up, and then the next person attacks. So basically, by the time I got to the run, I was absolutely trashed. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I had nothing in the legs. You know, I did not have my running legs. Ironically, I was running the best I'd ever run leading up to that point. Um, but I just, because of the, you know, the constant attack and because, you know, the onus was on the race favorites to bridge those gaps all the time. Mm. Um, it allowed people who essentially were able to just sit at the back and just cruise around, uh, you know, it allowed them to, to, to put the hammer down and have better runs um, than certainly the, the the race favorites. Yeah. Well, look, I don't want to I don't want to dwell on that because I, I again yeah. I, it it shouldn't. So, so that was a huge it, disappointment. Yeah, it's a disappointment. Um, it's a disappointment yeah. in in what's rather an exceptional career. Um, you know. Your, your attempts at Kona, that was really towards the end of your career. You started having some issues with your back. I know you had a back operation and things. And, yeah, yeah. And that's not I mean, going- I mean, in all honesty, my, my, my heart was never in. 
no. in Kona. You and me both. <laughs> I get I mean, it. it. You know, it was yeah. just like, well, I'll do it because the box. you know it's yeah. kind of it's kind of the expected thing to do. But in all honesty, I just found Ironman racing extremely boring. Yeah. You know? So mm-hmm. you know, we mentioned all these these different types of racing from you know the Super League style racing to the France Iron Tour to to really sort of the the combativeness of just Olympic distance mm-hmm. racing, which mm-hmm. really, you know, you're literally racing uh, stride, you know, stride with stride with your com- competitors. Um, whereas Ironman was just like, oh, just wake me up when this is done. And having to pace yourself. Having to pace yourself. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never yeah, wanted yeah. to do it. I remember when yeah. I turned 40, I was like, okay, I'll go do, I'll go do Kona and yeah. tick the box and, I didn't do it well. I, I mean, I got yeah. through it, but it, it was uh, compared to racing, whether it be Lifetime Series High V or all the World Cup stuff and everything you did, you know, it's like for me, that was always the sport of triathlon. But I, you know, and, and I think it's becoming a lot more bucketed. Like you said, right at the start of the show, you know, you, you're a PTO athlete that does the 100K distance or you're an Ironman or 70.3, whatever. Um, but how, what, what do you think of the where the sport is now for the professional athlete? I mean, it's... I don't want to put words in well, your mouth, but I, I love to hear what no, you No, no, no. And again, I mean, how do you, what do you define as a professional athlete? Because I think this is the thing that we're in. We're a very fragmented sport right now. Um, and as I said, and we've talked about this, you know, in our era, we did everything. You raced mm. non-drafting, you raced drafting, you raced some longer distance races, some half Ironman racing. Um, the Norwegians so, are doing that a bit with Christian Blumenfeld. He, he seems to be they, all over. They are. Yeah. They, no, yeah. No, 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 they, no, absolutely. But but a large majority are not. No, I mean, no, you're right. You're right. A World Series athlete last year and she said, well, no, sorry, last week. And she said, well, you know, I, I never want to get on a time trial bike ever. They, they're dangerous. I said, well, have, do you have no intention of ever stepping up? She said, no, 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 that's not triathlon for me. Um, so triathlon represents, a, you know, a very different thing depending on the athlete you mm. talk to. Mm. Um, and again, so, you know, you've got the World Series slash Olympic Games Avenue. I think the disconnect there is that the large majority of triathlon competitors, they can't really relate to it because they're not doing that style of racing. Mm. So mm. that's this little internal world where, you know, and again, I, I recently heard athletes talking about what points they could get at certain races, World 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 Series races. I remember, and I said to them, you know, guys, I remember having the same conversation. But those points you're talking about, that was money for us. Like yeah. we were talking about four thousand dollars or six thousand dollars, not you know, so many points type thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that in that regard, that's different. And I also feel that. Um, um, I think that we're struggling to, to, and I've certainly noticed in our coaching business, um, we, we're struggling to recover after COVID. Um, I know there's debate, is the sport declining? And I would say absolutely yes, it is at this point, you know, right now. Do you think more um, in the US I, or globally? I can't, speak for, I can't speak for Europe, but certainly in Europe, I do know, you know, uh, athletes and I'm including age group athletes or, or very much age group, group athletes who were sort of on this lifestyle sport and it was just routine that they swim, bike, run was part of their training. They jumped into a number of races every year. Um, well, that all sort of went by the wayside during lockdown. And those same athletes have now decided, well, I actually enjoy playing golf or I enjoy playing pickleball. <laughs> pickleball you know, pickleball's taken half of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I've, I, you know, I've got myself a gravel bike. I'm doing some gravel yeah, bike racing. Yeah, so yeah. I think that, that that absolutely has impacted where we are, uh, certainly here in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, I just feel like we have all these different um, arms of the sport and the left arm doesn't necessarily know what the right arm's doing. Mm. Uh, there's that disconnect between, you know, between those athletes, essentially. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, races that were selling out are no longer selling out. Um, and I think that we've gone from people being committed and using triathlon, as, as I say, as a lifestyle sport, to now more people coming in doing a one-off race. It's a bucket list sport, um, yeah. A bucket list and sort mm. of checking the box and kind of moving on. They don't have that same level of commitment and they're not necessarily – when I say commitment, they're not treating it as a healthy way to exercise. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. I, I mean, tell me if you got to go, by the way, because I know I'm, 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 I'm keeping you, but I mean, I'm thoroughly enjoying our chat. So <laughs> just say, hey, Greg, put a, put a thing in the notes and I'll let you go, but, but I don't want to let you go because I'm enjoying it. Um, but, but you know, I, I, I think as somebody, you know, we were talking pre-show and, um, you know, we both enjoy the sport for what it is and what it's given us. And, and um, for me, I still enjoy the conversations with the professionals, you know, recently having, you know, whether it be Ashley Gentle, who's been crushing the PTO or Lucy Charles, who finally won her Kona Ironman in 824, by the way, um, which is just insane. Um, I'm, I'm loving some of watching some of the remarkable performances at, at the professional level. Um, the age group racing, I think is still in pretty good hands. I think It'd be interesting when we get a new, have we got a new CEO for Ironman yet? Um, how they're going to drive that side of things. I think there's a lot of different pockets. I think we have Super League, like you said, and, and the World Series, and we have the PTO. and we. Have, it does feel like there's just, you know, who is the world champion these days? It's like a heavyweight f- fighter, you know? <laughs> they can, who, who are they fighting yeah. for? There is a little bit of all over the place. Um, I want to ask you a question on an opinion on Ironman and, and Kona and Nice. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, again, I mean, I think, um, you know, for me, I understand the historic value of Kona. And I've always thought that the Ironman World Championships should be rotated, uh, rotated as in any other sport to the, the, the highest bidder. Yeah. So, you know, if a city or town wants to put on the race, Ironman should be open to that. And I think that if you're always racing Kona as the Ironman World Championships, without a doubt, that environment definitely suits a specific type of athlete. 100%. And it's, and it's always going to be a disadvantage to another type of athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be fairer, rotate it so that we're racing all different types of courses in all sorts of different environments – um, climatic environments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that would be a fair way of doing things. So mm-hmm. I absolutely love the idea that they have Nice as world championships. Yep. Um, I think that is awesome because I think you have to be an all round athlete to do well on a course like that. Yeah. You know, and I know leading up to that point, everyone's worried about what, you know, you know, where should I use a disc wheel or not? I'm like, it's Nice. Have you ever ridden out there? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? up or so down yeah up or down hairpin bends yeah. Um, yeah you know obviously a sea uh sea state that's not always nice and flat and calm yeah uh can <clears> be you know it, it can be cold um so just i think a, a great environment for for a race like that but i think as you know as a world championships i firmly believe that that should be um rotated mm. as in any other sport whether it's track and field whether it's swimming 
Um, I like that take. Uh, I agree with that. I, I like that a lot. And potentially you could say you, every four years you go back to Kona or something. But, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, you could have a rotation every yeah. fourth year. It could be Kona. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. But you could still have Kona is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, of course. Just, you know, and open it up to those that want to go back to essentially the birthplace of Ironman. Uh, you know, for a lot of people, that's still extremely important. Mm. Um, but I don't feel... I feel like you're always favoring a certain type of athlete. Yeah. You know, it took it took Mark, I don't know how many years. Well, it took Mark uh, and, and Chris McCormack, both of them, seven years. McCormack, you know, you yeah. know, I, I didn't have that, that time to invest in it. I no. was at the end of my career. You no. know, I wasn't going to stop my short distance racing to no. go and, you know, to go and spend six years figuring out how to race Hawaii well. Mm. Um, it just wasn't any sense in that because the money was better in short distance racing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, mate, I, so that- I, I, I think that's a really good point. The other point I'd add is I actually miss having the men and women together. Um, I don't know. Yes. I'm not saying you have to uh, race on the same day, yeah. same time. I do like the women to have their own course without the distraction yeah. of the men, but I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit missing. When you no, don't I, have think, I think together. like last year was, was nice when they had a multi-day event. Oh, that was amazing. That was, that was perfect. That was the but best I, ever. But I, yeah, yeah, I do feel like this year it kind of lost its energy. Yeah. Um, you know the the energy around around the world championship should be there. Everybody should be involved, yeah. and so I think that that's you know I have a feeling that they'll switch back sooner than later. I do too. I uh, agree with you. To you know to a to a male female race um, over the same sort of weekend type thing. Mm. I want to finish up with just a uh, final four questions. You up for it? Yeah, sure. Go. All right. <laughs> If you could share a piece of advice, you know, to yourself as an 18-year-old self, what would it be? Um, you know, so... Well, 18, you're already hitting the... You're, you're leaving. Yeah. We've already gone through that. <laughs> well, well, I, think, I, mean, I think we have, you know, certainly as youngsters, you, you have um, a perception of yourself where you are of all importance and you're the most important thing that, is in the world at that given time. Mm. So, you know, I think talking back to myself, listen to others and listen to other people's stories because no doubt you can learn from that. And generally speaking, nowadays, being a little bit older, you realize everybody, everybody in this world has a story. Love it. And generally, if you're ready to listen to their story, it's more than likely more interesting than yours. I love that. That is one of the best. I've asked this question many, many times, but it almost summarizes why I do this show every week. It's like everybody has a story and a journey and everybody's got an experience or knowledge that you do not have. And if you're prepared to listen, there's amazing what you can extract. That's really good. That's really great. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people, people in general, whether it's athletically, whether it's emotionally, you know, Mm -hmm. private life, whatever, everybody is struggling through some sort of adversity. And you're not the only person who Mm -hmm. has had, you know, whatever it is, a tough upbringing or, you know, some sort of challenge in their life. Pretty much life offers offers you challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have, you know, very, very few people have breezed through life without any issues. So, yeah. um, you know, so respect that is what I'm saying. No, I love it. Yeah. All right, next one. If you could have invite any three people to dinner um, from any time in history, um, yeah. non-family, who would it be okay. and why? Well, obviously because of my upbringing and growing up in South Africa, number one would be Nelson Mandela. Mm. Um, I've always, I actually always said to myself it would be great if I could meet him. If you think about, 
you know, what he lived through, 28 years in prison, really fighting for a cause. Um, and then at the end of the at the end of the day, coming out of that and really, if you ever watched Invictus, mm-hmm, um, the mm-hmm. journey of South Africa's first World Cup victory where Nelson Mandela essentially got the whole country behind, um, you know, a sport, rugby, which was predominantly, you know, a, you know, it, it, it was representative of the apartheid era. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think he was a, a uniter and the fact that the country like South Africa never went into a civil war a real civil war was incredible. I mean, he, he managed to, you know, bring the country together. So yeah, that would be right. And if you ever are looking for a good book to read, I've got a couple of books here. Yeah. Uh, long walk, long walk to freedom, which is Nelson Mandela's autobiography. Uh, very inspirational. Great. Right. I'll put uh, that yeah. on my yeah. audible. Perfect. And, and then, you know, again, number two, have you ever heard of Joe Rantz? Most probably not, and I'm sure not many people have, but he was uh, an American rower who grew up in Washington State in the 30s during the Great Depression um, in a lumber town. He was abandoned by his family, and he ended up rowing uh, uh, for the University of Washington, and Mm -hmm. eventually the University of Washington got selected to represent the United States in the um, 1936 Nazi Olympics Mm -hmm. Summer Games. Mm -hmm. And they went on to win gold medal, um, a gold medal. But his his story and the story of that crew is absolutely phenomenal. That's Boys in the really, Boat, right? Boys in the Boat, really inspiring. Great so book. Actually, yes. and I just I just uh, read recently that I think George Clooney is the director of a Boys in the Boat uh, movie that's coming ah. out in December. Oh, brilliant. Uh, what a book. Yeah, yeah. yes, fantastic yeah, book. Yeah. Yes. I forgot the yeah, name, Joe Rance, right. but you're right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So he was sort of the, a key player in that. So mm. very interesting guy, inspirational, very humble guy, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, obviously a phenomenal athlete. And then I'm sure you've heard or maybe you haven't of Major Taylor. Major Taylor. Yeah, Major Taylor. He was the first uh, uh, basically black international sports star. Uh, grew up in uh, he was cycling world champion in 1899, sprint champion. And his story is also very, very inspiring. I mean, basically, he grew up in Jim Crow era here in the United States where people were ganging up to, you know, essentially crash him out of races because predominantly they didn't want to race against a black person. Mm. And uh, phenomenal book as well, Major Taylor, The Forgotten Champion, like really inspiring book as well. Mm. Um, and, yeah, those those three would be great to have sitting around a table that is awesome listening to their stories yeah it'll make you feel fairly like wow i really haven't done anything <laughs> i'm just kidding greg I, greg I can't believe i can't believe you haven't heard of major taylor i don't know why i haven't i've yeah, definitely yeah. the other two obviously yeah. but major I mean, taylor I, mean, I didn't i didn't realize i mean a couple of these things like uh, um, ncaa rowing yeah back in the 20s 30s they used to get you know somewhere between 50 to 100,000 spectators watching the races yeah and then uh, madison square gardens was originally a velodrome. Yeah, so right. The, you know, and essentially betting on cycling was more prominent than betting on boxing at the time. Wow. Um, Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, Mate, you've just given boxing. me a couple of – well, I've done Boys in the Boat. I'd love to read it again. Yeah. I'm more of an audible person. I, I fall asleep okay. if I read books, but I, yeah. I listen to books – you know, nonstop. I love, I love yeah. my audible books. Well, Major um, Taylor is definitely one is out there and one of my favorites. So. Awesome, yeah. mate. All right. Fast forward. Next five years. Where's Simon Lessing in the next five years? Your daughters are going to be out of college. 
you guys are going to, you and Lisa are going to be empty nesters. What, what, what are we're we doing? We're empty nesters already. Yeah, you really are with the girls in college. Well, college, I kind of still feel like there's a tiny string, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good question. We're trying to figure that out. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, with my background, I wouldn't be opposed to getting involved somewhat. You know, I think a lot of our, our commitment moving over to the United States was really about family and mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously they've had, um, you know, they've been heavily involved in swimming and swimming, their swimming careers. And, um, you know, for me, you know, taking a step back and maybe contributing collegiately, maybe coaching, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a national program would be of interest to me somewhere along the lines. Well, I'd be lucky to have you in, in the sport of triathlon or swimming in or sport, no, in the sport of triathlon. All right. Yeah. Everybody listening. Um, wow. That'd be huge so that, for any that, federation. Would, uh, you know, I would be interested in that potentially yeah. down the line. Uh, well, with your coaching background for the last 15 years, you've been coaching and then the 25 years of triathlon before that, there's, there's, there's yeah. plenty of knowledge to be sharing. And then obviously having two daughters that have gone through, you know, a sporting career. Yeah, and, you know, both Lisa, Lisa and my wife, and yeah. I, we, we, you know, when I finished triathlon in 2008, I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? Mm. And I've always in the back of my mind was intrigued about rowing, sculling. So yes, was, yes, uh, I knew you were rowing. Sculling. Yeah. And so we, we're still actively involved in that. Um, and I can't really get competitive anymore. Uh, but I will say, or I don't really like, and you may find the same thing, Greg, you know, I do question, you know, why am I riding my bike and getting my heart rate up to 180, you know, beats per minute? You know, what's at what point is my heart going to say I've had enough and it's just going to stop? <laughs> so I kind of I kind of cruise through workouts nowadays. Yeah, you me know, I too. still swim, I yeah. swim, I still bike, but it's kind of more in the cruise. You know, I'll push myself, but not that hard. Yeah. The one the one the one aspect of, of really pushing myself and I am able to do that is actually rowing. So Yeah. Um yeah, so I enjoy that. It's been it's been therapeutic and, and enjoyable to learn a completely different sport. Yeah, you've you've been you've been rowing for a while. I remember when you took up rowing. I think yeah. competitively, if you'd ever not that there's much money in rowing, <laughs> but I always thought of you you would have been a great rower because I grew up rowing, and I know Hamish Carter did and a whole Hamish bunch. Did, of, yeah, it yeah. was a, yeah. it's a, and it's quite funny because there are quite a few ex rowers who've turned to triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I just see them around town, and it's like, oh yeah, I was on the national team, or you know, I yeah. rowed collegiately, yeah. uh, but there aren't many who've gone from triathlon to rowing. So. No. No, no, yeah. you're the only one. Yeah, I'm the only one. All right, this is not meant to be a morbid question. It's actually meant to be just to get some direction. If you had six months to live, how would you spend those last six months? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I almost say I've lived my life inversely, in, in, inversely mm-hmm. meaning it was action-packed, you know, for the first half of my life. And that included all my racing and traveling. Mm-hmm. You know, one of, the, one of the regrets is I went to all these places from, you know, m- m- you know Morocco, New <laughs> Caledonia, Fiji, uh, I mean, pretty much everywhere. And I've seen none of it. Isn't it funny? Uh, You've seen a hotel yeah. room and a race yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, five, six months to live, I would like to spend traveling with my family. Oh, yeah. That's I love what it. I would do, yeah. I, what a great answer. Well, mate, the, I, I need you back on the show because I feel like we only scratched the surface together. I, I thoroughly enjoyed I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you better. I feel like we've known each other for a long time. Um, but, you know. You say good day on pool deck and dive in and do workouts. You know what I mean? It's never. Yeah, and I think um, it's you know our sports unique because we do 
you know, it, it's as an individual sport, um, I don't feel you necessarily develop the friendships and you then the track is very different. For example, if you went to college and, you know, of course, established some, some college friends, et cetera. Mm. We grew up in an environment where we're all trying to kick each other's ass. Absolutely. So, Kill or be um, killed. <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so there's a little bit yeah. of hostility there yeah. and there's, you know, yeah, yeah, I, don't think, I don't think that, um, you know, we had the chance to really get to know one another no. and Yeah. It's so funny. I had the same is. conversation with Jan Fredino. I'm like, the moment I retired, I'm like, oh yeah, Jan's not such a dickhead. <laughs> and it was like, huh, maybe it was actually just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is what always makes me laugh. It makes me laugh when people talk about sportsmanship because I'm like, you know, at an elite level, there isn't, I mean, sportsmanship, come on. I mean, you're, yeah. you, you, you know, you can't leave yourself vulnerable. You basically have to sort of create enemies to do well. Absolutely. I, mean, I hate to say that, but that's kind no, of. No, it's true to get the most out of yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, mate, trust me, this has been a really thrilling episode. Thoroughly enjoyed having you on. And I mean it, you know, if you ever want to come back on to share more of the stories and we can, you know, even if we want to scrutinize the sport more or whatever, I feel like I, I had to miss a, a fair few of the, the questions I did have, but I am conscious of the time. Um, but mate, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Yeah. No, it's been good to talk to you. Yeah. All right. Now for everybody listening. Admit- yep. Go on, mate. No, I was going to say, maybe I should come visit you in Florida. Oh, you're welcome to any time, buddy. We're, um, bring your tennis racket, tennis racket, maybe a set of golf clubs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All the best to Lisa too. And the kids mate. Um, and for everybody, you can find all the show notes and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. All right. Stay on the line, mate. Cheers. Cheers.